You may be seated. Now, if I were to ask you what, what uh, Bill Gates, Winston Churchill, and the Beatles had in common, it might take you a couple minutes to probably come up with that answer, because let's face it, uh, they're all very well known for completely different reasons. Uh, one is known for business, one is known for politics, and the other is known uh, for, of course, music. And they're, they're all very different in those ways. But if there was a similarity, I think we could all see that that similarity would be in the fact that they're all extremely successful in what it is that they do, or in the case of some of them, what they did. Uh, the very fact that all of us, or the majority of us in here, recognize those names of, of those people and groups of people um, really give evidence to the fact of how just how successful they truly were. Now, I believe in the heart of all of us here, in the heart of every person, in fact, uh, that there is a desire to be successful, right? I mean, I, I don't know very many people who get up and their life's ambition is to be a miserable failure in everything they do. Right? There's, instead, I think it's just the opposite. I think all of us want to be successful in whatever it is that we're doing, whether that is in schooling or whether it's in our work or whether it's in our family, raising our kids, our marriage. I mean, would you guys agree with this? In the areas of our finance, we want to be successful in all of those things. I think that desire is, for the most part, universal. And, and I think it's true both for believers in Jesus Christ and those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. There's a desire to be successful in whatever it is that we do. Um, the, the problem for the believer is, is this, is, is not in his desire to be successful per se, but the problem that he gets in and the problem that churches get in is then is how we ultimately define that success. See, when we as believers begin to define success and determine our success based on the same standards of the world, that's when problems begin to happen. That's when we find ourselves being discouraged. That's when we find ourselves being derailed from doing what it is that God has ultimately called us uh, to do. And so we've got to be careful with how we ultimately define it. Now, if, as we've worked through the book of Judges, soon we're going to be coming to the end, maybe in a year or two. And, uh, and we're, we're, as we're moving through, I would dare say that for the most of us, the most familiar judge uh, of the entire book has been Samson for the majority of us. Would you agree? And the reason for that is not because we know him for all of his failures, but because we know him for all of his what? His successes. In some ways and from some perspectives, he's really the most um, successful judge in, in the entire book. I mean, it seems like everything he turns to or touches turns to success, even when things seem to be completely against him. We saw kind of an example of this last week. Um, he loses a bet all right, with a group of guys, but somehow at the end, he still ends up on top, right? And so what we find in chapter 15, all that I read before, is we basically take a look at his successes, and we see that same pattern. The Philistines come up against him. They try to one-up him, and every time they do, somehow at the end of the story, he's the one who's ultimately successful, and it happens time and time and time again. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Let me make sure our, our, our path is clear since we've got so much text. What I want to do is I want to briefly give you an overview of his successes found in chapter uh, 15. Just kind of quick, just kind of tell the stories to you as quickly as I can. And then when we get to the end of it, what, what I hope to show you is that the success that he experiences is far more success in the eyes of the world than it is success in the eyes of of God. And then I want to kind of unpack that 
for a couple of minutes to, to, to kind of finish up. So let's just look at this then this morning. Let's look at this story. Uh, I'm just going to kind of walk through. I'll hit some of the verses, but I'm going to explain to you uh, the stories and what's going on there. And so uh, what we find in the beginning of chapter 15 is that Samson's finally gotten over his anger from the wedding feast and the whole uh, riddle debacle. You remember this? Uh, he had, he had, he had um, posed a riddle and made a bet to a group of 30 Philistines men at his, at his wedding feast, told them that they couldn't solve the riddle within seven days and bet them, you know, a whole set of clothing uh, to whoever could solve, if they could solve it, if they couldn't, they owed him in, in, in uh, 30 garments of clothing. And we found out that he lost the bet because of who? His wife, right? His wife blew it for him. She turned on the whole crocodile tears and came up to him and said, you don't love me because you won't tell me the riddle. And he tells her, then what does she do with it? She goes and she ruins him because she takes that truth and she goes to the Philistines. They find out what it is. He loses the bet and he becomes angry. Well, now enough time has gone by where he wants to make up with a schmoopy, right? I mean, you, you guys understand that. He, he wants to go back to his wife, and in the beginning of 15, this is what we see, he shows up at his father-in-law's house with a young goat underneath his arm, basically is what the scriptures say, and he wants to make up. Now, most of the time, guys, we know if we want to make up with our wives in our culture and in our time, it usually takes maybe a bouquet of flowers Maybe it takes a box of chocolate, Godiva chocolate, right, honey, right? It it may be a Hallmark card if you care enough to give the very best, all right, to her. Uh, But in the time of Samson, uh, basically nothing said, I love you and I'm sorry, honey, like a young goat, all right? And so he shows up at the door and uh, with this young goat, knocks on the door, um, her father-in-law, come, his father-in-law comes to the door and he says, I'd like to see my wife. He says, you're not going to see her. I've given her away. He goes, I gave her away, in fact, to your best man from the wedding. And, and, and now understand, you, you can't really blame him, right? I mean, he even says within the text of Scripture, he says, I thought that you utterly hated her. You can't blame him for that. Remember his actions. It was in the middle of the wedding feast, what happens? He gets up and calls her a big fat heifer. Do you remember that? That's the Bible. Okay, maybe the fat part I added, but he calls her a heifer, all right? And he's calling his daughter this heifer. And and then he leaves the wedding feast. He goes to a a town, you know, next to where they are, and and he murders 30 people. He steals their clothing. He comes back, and he pays his gambling debt at the wedding feast, okay? Are are you you guys catching this, all right? And then he leaves and disappears, and nobody ever hears from him for a long period of time. And finally, now he shows up at the front door. So you can't be too hard on the father-in-law to sit there and go, I don't think he's into my daughter, right? And so he gives her away to his best man. Samson, for whatever reason, doesn't like that, okay? That is that now his, his, his best man is now married to his wife. So he vows that he's going to get back with them. He vows revenge. Now, what's amazing about Samson, if he's not good at anything, he's good at revenge. In fact, he's incredibly creative. You know, most people might flatten somebody's tires or egg their house or something, He's really creative. What he does is he goes out and takes the time to catch 300 foxes, all right? He ties their tails together. He puts a torch in between them, catches them on fire, the torches, that is, and then he allows the foxes in pairs to go through all the Philistines' fields and burn down their crops right at harvest time before they're able to collect all the crops. Well, guess what? Round one, Samson is successful. Round two, 
The Philistines, they're not going to... I'm just telling you what's in chapter 15. Uh, second round, uh, they don't like this, <laughs> as you can imagine. Their, their kids are now going to starve because of Samson. They get angry with him. So what they do is they go and they burn to death both his wife and his father-in-law. Obviously, unfortunate. The Bible says it right there in verse 6. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson's not going to take this lying down. He wants, to get, he wants to get back at them. And so in verse 8, the Bible says, and he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and he stayed in the cleft of the rock with Edom. Round two, who's successful? Samson, successful. Round three. The people, the Philistines, are even more frustrated with him. They're trying to find some way to get back with him. They're trying to hurt the ones that he loves. And so they go down to a little town called Lehi. And Lehi is, is really uh, an Israelite city. And so they go down there and they ransack it. And so what happens is at that point, the people go out to him and say, what are you doing? And the Philistines said, we're just giving back to you what Samson ultimately did to us. We're ticked off at Samson because of all the pain that he's caused us. And they said, well, listen. And it demonstrated how lost they were and how deep in sin and how they were so clueless because of their sin that they didn't even know that they needed saving. They said, don't worry, we'll take care of this. So 3,000 uh, men from Judah march down to where Samson is hanging out in the cleft in, in the rock, and they come to him and they say to him, "Hey, listen, listen, uh, we don't know what you're doing." Uh, he goes, and basically he's saying, I, "I'm trying to save you," and he goes, "We don't need saving. You're causing problems for us. We need to take you to the Philistines." And so uh, Samson says, "Okay, well, go ahead, bind me, whatever you have to do. Just promise that you're not going to kill me. Oh, we're, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to hand you over to the Philistines so that they'll kill you. All right." And so you see the reason here and so they bind him the bible says with two very new ropes all right two brand new ropes his hands and feet or whatever it is and as they're about to hand him over and the philistines are about to try to kill him he breaks free he breaks out of the ropes he picks up the closest thing to him a fresh jawbone of a donkey the bible says as opposed to an old stale jawbone all right i think that's important he picks it up and he begins to kill a thousand philistines with it round three at the end of the chapter guess what round goes to who samson he's successful once again so from a worldly perspective, and, and, and understand this, in some perspective, he really is being successful as a judge of Israel because the part of his role was to do what? Was to bring judgment against the nations that were opposing and oppressing God's people. So in one aspect, he is extremely successful. But note this, when we begin to kind of take a little bit closer look below the surface, and begin to look through the lenses of Scripture and begin to look through the eyes of God, we find out that the success that he experiences is far more worldly than it is godly. Let me give you two reasons for that. And that's, first of all, did you love the story? Yes, I know, you loved it. You're like, I don't get it. All right, well, let's try to unpack it, all right? First of all, worldly success lacks humility. Worldly success lacks humility. It's why it's different than godly success. Notice, if you will, in verse 18. Let me draw your attention there. Verse 18, this is after he defeats the thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And then here it says, and he was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord. Did you know that? He called upon the Lord. That's significant. 
You say, why? Because, first of all, this is the first time we ever see him uh, really admonish God, to call out to God, to talk to God. We've looked at him for chapters. He's done a whole lot of stuff, and not once have we seen him turn to, to God, not, not even once. This is the very first time that we see him do it. You say, well, why is that significant? Because prayer is a, de- is a direct demonstration of one's acknowledgement and dependence upon God. Listen to me. Where there is no prayer, there is no acknowledgement of God. Where there is no prayer, there is no dependence upon God. So what has he been doing? He's been doing everything up to this point without any acknowledgement of God during the day, without any dependence upon God at all. Now, he's been able to fulfill some pretty impressive things. Would would you agree? Killing a thousand people with a jawbone of a donkey is weird, but it's impressive, right? And so he's been able to do all this thing, but the Bible has been crystal clear from the text that he hasn't done it alone. He's done it by the empowering of God. If you were to go back and look, when he kills the lion, the Bible says he did it by the power of God. The power of God was on him. When he took revenge on the 30 men after the bet, the Bible says that the power of God was on him and working in him. Again, we we, we see again, as he takes on the 30, we read there, it says, then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So here's where Samson is. Samson had no problem using the abilities and blessings of God that God had afforded to him but he refused to acknowledge or depend on God evidenced by his lack of prayer. In other words, he's no different than somebody who's lost. No different. Do you know that before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, this is exactly how we live? Before we ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are living a life with the blessings of God, with the talents of God, with the giftedness of God, with the intellect of God, and we're going and we're living our life and we're having our own individual successes, our successful life, all without acknowledging the very one who has given us those particular abilities. Do you see that? That's what a lost and dying world doesn't know. They don't want to have anything to do with God. They don't want to acknowledge him. They don't want to worship him. But yet it was God who gave them all that they have, the abilities, gifts, and intellect to do and to fulfill what it is that they're doing. And so Samson is doing nothing more than acting like a lost person. And and, and so do we. I don't know what you've done in this last week, but anything that you and I are doing apart from prayer, we're doing apart from acknowledging who God is in humility over our life, and we are refusing to be fully dependent upon him. And what the scriptures are getting at here is that that might be worldly success, but it's not godly success. Success. Jesus says it like this in John chapter 15 and verse 1. He says the words, and, and as a kid, this mind boggled me. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, does that mean absolutely nothing? You can't do anything at all? I mean, lost people who are apart from the grace and the mercy of God through their son, Jesus Christ, he's out there and they're doing a lot of stuff, right? So certainly they can do something. So what does it mean that Jesus, what does it mean when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing? What it means is that you and I can have absolutely no We can do nothing of eternal value and nothing that glorifies God apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from us acknowledging God in all that we do, and apart from going to him in prayer in all that we do, if we're out there using the gifts and abilities of God that he's given us to be able to further our family, further our finance, further our ministries, but, but it's a rarity for us to be able to go back to God on a consistent basis in prayer, What is he showing us? He's saying you're doing all this and it's more worldly success than it is godly success. In in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
um, Paul tells us and he warns us that one day all of our works and all of our successes will be judged by God. We'll stand before God and he says, listen, anything that was based on the foundation that was laid, meaning the person of Jesus Christ, he says, you'll be rewarded for. Let me, let me unpack that just a minute. He says, anything that you do in this life that is based on full dependence on God for the glory of God, one day that will remain after the judgment of God, the final judgment of God, and you'll be rewarded for every bit. He says, but every bit that you do, whether you use my abilities, whether you use my gifts, whether you use the intellect that I gave you, and you do it apart from dependence upon me and apart from the glory of God, it will all be burned up and you will be left with, guess what? Nothing. Do you understand what the scriptures are teaching here? You can do a whole lot of stuff and really look, really look incredibly successful, but if you were doing it without the recognition of God in all that you do and dependence upon God, it's literally nothing is what the scriptures say. Now, somebody would sit back and say this in verse 18. They said, but Mike, he is acknowledging God. Look at verse 18. He says, you have granted, this is his prayer to God, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Okay, well, I admit he's acknowledging God that he's given him the victory, but note the second sentence, right? He says, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? He's not really acknowledging God here. This is just a backhanded compliment. If you've ever been called into the boss to be reamed out, you know what's going on here, right? It's like this. You go in, your boss talks really kindly of you for three seconds. Just want to let you know how much we appreciate you being here. And then for the next 30 minutes, he tells you what an abysmal failure you've been. Do you remember the three seconds of praise? No, it's just been a segue to tear your head off is basically what it is. He's doing the same thing. Hey, God, thank you so much in his prayer. He's coming to, listen, first of all, he never comes to God in prayer and set for what? In extreme situations. He's living his life apart from God, just like a lost person does. And he comes to God only in the midst of extreme situations. Does it sound exactly like a lost person? It does. And so what he does is he, he comes back and he basically says to God, he, he, so he, here's, here's what he's been doing. He has not been acknowledging God in what he's been doing. He has not only not acknowledged God, but now he is actually accusing God. And what he's saying is, yeah, you did that, but you're not really taking care of me. You're not really providing for me. So he's actually accusatory in what he's doing. Let me, let me give you a warning here. Let us all be warned and let us all be aware that when the only time that we come to God in prayer is in extreme situations, we're in big trouble. I want to make sure, because the second point is going to be to understand it, you're going to have to understand this first point. If you're doing a whole lot of stuff and you think it's good and you think it's wonderful and you're having success in it, you're raising up good kids and they, they, they even like to come to church. Your wife seems to be kind of hitting. Your, your relationship with your wife seems to be hitting on, on, all, uh, uh, on all cylinders. Everything seems to be good there. There's money in the bank account. And you're coming and going, but never doing it in light of who God is. And humility that all of it's done is being done for him and glory. And the evidence, and you say, how do I know if I am or am not? According to the scriptures, it has to do with how often you're coming to him in prayer. Your prayer, your consistent prayer that is demonstrating a true humility in who you are and all that you do and all that you accomplish. God says when you do it that way with humility, that's success in his eyes. To do it without the humility is nothing more than the success of the world. The second thing that I want you to do, look, we're, we're almost over. 
This is amazing. You, you picked the right day to come to church, all right? Two points, not three. Here's the second thing. Second is worldly success not only lacks humility, but it also lacks change. It also lacks change. Notice verse 19. It says, And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Now, 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 now get what's going on here. Samson has been a punk. Would you agree? Punk Samson. Here he is. he is. He is not acknowledging God in anything that he's doing. He's not referencing him. He's not humbling himself before God. And now he's actually accusing God for not being a good deliverer and not being a good provider, which we know the evidence is speaking completely against the same. And how does God respond to somebody like that? He provides and he protects for him and he gives him even more water. If you want to know what grace is, that's an example of grace. That's an example of God's unmerited favor. It's exactly, and it's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're wondering how to be born again, it's all based on the completed work of Christ. It's the fact that he chose you and he died upon the cross for you to be able to satisfy the wrath of God between, because of our sins. And he did it all, not because you're a good person, but because he is good and because he is gracious. We see the picture of it right there. But, but, but though God continues to... Now, listen, you would, you would expect that because he's extending his grace and his mercy to him, you think he would do enough, that he would give him enough blessings that it would actually turn his heart back to God, wouldn't you? I mean, that's what Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 says. It says in, in, in Revelation 2, 4, it says that the goodness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. But here's the crazy thing. All of this time has gone on, and absolutely nothing has changed. Israel hasn't changed in 20 years. He hasn't changed in 20 years. He has a lot of excess, success, but there's no change. N- notice what the scriptures say. It says, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. What he was supposed to be doing was delivering the people from the Philistines, from their spiritual and physical oppression. 20 years later, through all these successes, again, nothing's changed for the people and nothing has changed for Samson. We note that when we look at chapter 16 and verse 1. Look at it for me, with me. Just, just bear with me for a moment. It says there, it says, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Okay? Now, what do we know about Samson? The first time that we got a peek of Samson, uh, way, way back, a couple chapters ago, what did we see of him? He was a man who lived according to his flesh, not according to the Spirit of God. He only lived to fulfill his flesh. How do we know that? Because the woman that he wanted to marry was an unbeliever. She was a Philistine, and God had specifically commanded them not to marry people from the other cultures because they were worshiping false gods. So in order to fulfill and satisfy his own flesh, he was willing to be sinful in it by marrying an unbeliever. But do you see that things haven't gotten better? Things have gotten worse? So now he's trying to satisfy the same sinful desire if you will, and he's doing it, or or maybe a God-given desire, but he's trying to fulfill it in a sinful way. Now, no longer is he even going to a wife. Now, he's going into a prostitute. Do you see how there's no change here in him? He's actually going from bad to actually worse. Now, here's my question. Just follow me with this for a second. As I'm reading through this, my question is, how can it be that a person who can have given so many extraordinary abilities and spiritual gifts by God and do so many impressive things, and yet still be so fleshly and unholy. Let me give you another one. Have you seen churches that we've seen that have been so incredibly successful? 
and you look at them, and then you find out, unfortunately, and I say this with as humble, broken heart as I possibly can, so you understand this, not condemning somebody, but just recognizing the, the, the sorrow of it. Then you find out that the pastor for years has been in multiple adulterous relationships. And through that whole period of time, they've grown and they've grown and they've grown and, and everybody thinks that they're their church and they write books and everybody thinks it's the very best thing. How in the world? Everybody buys their books and gets their CDs and, and then everybody feels like they're broken and then we're trying to piece this together. How can there be such success? But absolutely, you know, his heart is a million miles away from God. How, how can he have such a great ability? I think Tim Keller really helps us in his book on Judges with this. Listen to what he says. He suggests that there, are, there is a huge difference between gift giving and fruit bearing. Now, I'm going to drive this home for you. Listen very carefully. There is fruit, there's, there's gift giving that God gives to every new believer. It's called our spiritual gifts. You guys with me on this? Spiritual gifts, God gives every believer spiritual gifts. And the purpose of giving those gifts is for the propagation of the gospel and the edifying and building up of the church. In other words, it is for us to build each other up, to encourage each other. It's the way, it's the gift that we use to serve one another. You got it? That, that, that's what they're for. But then we also have spiritual fruit. Now, whereas spiritual gift is what you do, spiritual fruit is what you are. It's the character of who you are underneath all of that stuff. And the Bible gives us a list of it in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 through 23. It says that, there's that spiritual fruit, that demonstration that God is not only in us, but he's changing us, is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You guys are familiar with those, right? Now, let me ask you this. Of all the amazing things in which, in, in, in which our hero here has been doing, all the mind-blowing successes that he's been having, do we see any fruit in him? Do we see much evidence of love? How about peace? How about joy? How about self-control? When you go off on a thousand people with a jawbone of a donkey, you're probably lacking self-control. Are you with me? He, he's lacking all of this stuff. And so what we find is this, is that you can be incredibly impressive. You can be incredibly successful outwardly. But inwardly, if there's no change, in the eyes of God, there's no true success. Let me give you one more example, and this is really what happens. Samson goes into this prostitute, which I think we could all agree, no evidence here of going into a prostitute. We don't see any evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. You with me? Okay, so here's what he does, but notice his incredible spiritual gifts. So he's in there with her. What happens is the enemy comes and says, hey, we got him surrounded. Let's surround him, and we're going to ambush him at the gate as soon as he comes out during daylight. So he gets up at midnight, and he decides that he's going to get off. He, somehow he's able to be able to slip out past all the guards, and he gets to the city gate, the doors on the city gate. We're not talking about little itty-bitty doors like in your house and my house, okay? I can even take that door off. He goes to the city gates, and he picks them up, and he takes them off the, he takes them off the hinges. You guys getting this, right? He picks him off, takes him off the hedges, throws him on the back, and the scriptures tell us, what does he do? He goes all the way, he, he's traveling down, where's, where's the end of that? Um, 
In verse 16 there, it says that he goes up to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now, they may not seem all that impressive until you find out that these gates are probably thousands of pounds, hundreds of thousands of pounds, and now he's carrying them some 40 miles on his back to Hebron. It's impressive, right? And so it's amazing, it's impressive, we're seeing all this, but what is God ultimately saying? Again, we have to be aware of how impressive we look on the outside, but all the time understanding, knowing that inside we might be failing completely and fully before God. One author said it this way, this pattern is so common that there, are, there may be regularity, uh, there, there may be regularly be a link between an impressive outer life and a broken inner life. So let me give you something personal to apply here and something uh, corporate for us as a body to remember as we close. Um, Please don't think at any moment at any time if you feel like as though everything is going well uh, that that's truly success as God defines success. The, the, the problem is, is when we get in success and when God begins to give us all of these good things, the sad part about us, and this demonstrates just how sinful we are, the more that God seems to bless us, the more we seem to use it against the God who blessed us. It shows the depth of our sinfulness, doesn't it? And so we begin to push him off and we can begin to think that all that is right, but then we only return to him when things begin to hit rock bottom And again, usually in understanding this, when we return to him, it's usually not because we're returning in repentance, usually returning to complain that he hasn't been the provider that he ultimately needed to be, just as Samson did. And so here, when we get to this last little portion here, and we think that everything looks good on the outside, and things are broken on the inside, don't think just because everything is going well, that your heart is right with God. That God's viewing all that you're doing. Look, you can be impressive outwardly, but be sinful and corrupt inwardly. Let, let, me, let me talk about this as, as a church as a whole as well. And it's kind of weird that I'm preaching this right now with so many people out today, but let me, let me, let me just say it anyway for the true saints of God who are here today. Um, uh, let, let me say this. God has been blessing our church immensely over the years, immensely. Not only with numerical growth of people coming, uh, but also financially, we've seen incredible. We had a lady that was visiting with us last week, and she just she began to talk to us. She goes, I'm a financial secretary from a large church in Jacksonville. She goes, it's just amazing how God is blessing you guys financially and what he's doing. We've been able to acquire some property. We've been able to do all that. But, but, but let, me, let, me, let me just say this to you. We've always got to remember that those in and of themselves are not true signs of success as far as God defines it. We could be doing all of those things, but unless there's spiritual change within our hearts, unless we're loving each other more, unless we're loving a lost and dying world, wanting to see them to come to faith in Christ, unless we're growing in faithfulness, unless we're growing in our holiness, unless we're becoming more like Christ, all of those externals are nothing but worldly success, not godly success. I told you it's amazing how sinful I am and this where Samson is. I see myself with Samson and the fact that God is the greater and the nicer and the, and, and the more wonderful he is in blessing him, the more he uses it and the more sinful he becomes to be able to, to really go his own way and apart from God. Have you ever sensed that? 
It shows the depth of my depravity and the need of, of why I need a Savior. Here's why I need the Savior. Because I'm so bad that I can take the goodness of God and use it in a sinful way. You with me? God is so good, he can take my sin and use it in my life in a good way. That's why I need Jesus. That's why you need Jesus. Let's pray. Lord,